The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Technical virtuosity, though, it's essential and it's something we pursue for a lifetime and are never satisfied with and should never be downgraded, is never enough. What we seek in art is this dialogue, this tension between technical virtuosity on the one hand and signs of the individual vibration, the idiosyncratic vibration of an individual. Welcome back to the Next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnett, and today I'm speaking again with the great Adam Gopnik. One of the reasons I call him great is that, of course, he's a great writer. You don't need to look at the bestseller lists or the National Magazine Awards to know that. You can just pick up a copy of The New Yorker to see that the man has a way with words. Now, the thing that's really great about Adam is that he doesn't rest on those laurels. He takes those laurels and minces them up. He sprinkles them onto a souffle he just cooked up. In midlife, he's taught himself how to bake, how to box, how to draw, how to dance. In mid-career, he's taken his fluency with the written word and remixed it into fiction, criticism, songwriting. Along the way, Adam's been guided by one of the key insights he shares in his new book, The Real Work, The Mystery of Mastery. And that insight is that what we really seek when we set out to learn a skill is not perfection, but something more human. We need evident imperfection in order to be perfectly impressed. Vibrato is a way of not quite landing directly on the note. Rubato is not quite keeping perfectly to the beat. Expressiveness is error. What really moves us in music is the vital sign of a human hand in all its unsteady and broken grace. Ella singing Gershwin matters because Ella knows when to make the words warble and Ellis Larkins at the piano knows when to make the keyboard sigh. The art is the perfected imperfection. I did want to ask you a little bit about this um, career move you made some time ago, where after decades of doing the kind of writing you're most known for, that you decided to enter the world of musical theater. What made you think you could become that kind of writer? Well, I'd always been writing lyrics. I wrote the college show, which was about the life of um, Vladimir Tatlin, the Russian constructivist architect. And I came to New York with that under my elbow, sure that I was, you know, 30 seconds from Broadway, because who wouldn't want a big show about the life of a Russian constructivist architect? But I'd always loved songwriting more than anything. And I was always, all my life, I've been writing songs. I wrote them for my family, for my wife's birthday, for uh, the kids. And I writing lyrics was just something I loved to do. But I only got a chance to do it professionally when uh, the great composer David Shire approached me because he had been enjoying some of my writing and his wife pushed him to do it because he said he wouldn't be interested about writing a, a musical together. And we did. It's called Our Table. You can find it on Spotify. I'm immensely proud of it. And writing lyrics was the, I wrote the libretto, but I also wrote the lyrics. And it was something that I, I loved to do and found that I could do ably because writing is writing. But what fascinated me to come kind of to the ground to the ground of it is that music is by far the most powerful medium we have and a great song is to my mind without question or exception the highest art form that human beings have it's the one place where heart and head 
meet most potently. It's the one place where you can get an idea in tune with an emotion and that becomes more powerful than either idea or emotion. Of all the art forms known to man, the song is, I will say, incontestably the highest. It communicates to universally, to the most intricate mind and the simplest. And of all the work I've ever done as a, as a writer, there are two songs in our table that are my two proudest achievements, particularly oh. It's Never Raining in Seattle. It's never raining. It's never raining in Seattle. Not in Seattle. The sky's so blue there. They close the schools there at the frightful sight of a rainbow. Among the other insights you draw from the world of music is this idea of you use vibrato as an example of, um, I think you say, expressiveness is error. I mean, in a way, what we're attracted to is not perfection or virtuosity. We like a hint of that, but what we really like is the the human idiosyncrasies that shine through. And you have some great examples in the book. Could you share some? Yes. Of, of all the kind of themes in the book, of all the lessons in the book, of all the takeaways, that's, I think, by far the most important. That technical virtuosity, though it's essential and it's something we pursue for a lifetime and are never satisfied with and should never be downgraded is never enough. What we seek in art is this dialogue, this tension between technical virtuosity on the one hand and signs of the individual vibration, the idiosyncratic vibration of an individual. A favorite example of mine, which is relatively new for me, is uh, the great Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was a wonderful and hugely virtuosic adept blues guitarist. But it was only when he discovered the power of amplifier distortion that he became Jimi Hendrix. He understood that in this, the, the beeps and oinks and sirens and, and growls of amplifier distortion, which everybody had always struggled to keep out of the music, that there was a language, an overlooked language of personal expression that he could add to the music and become Jimi Hendrix when he did. That's what we value in music. And think of any of the singers who we love. We never love them. There are lots of people graduating as sopranos from music school who can hit every note perfectly. We love Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan and uh, Renee Fleming exactly because we immediately identify their voice. The idiosyncratic vibration of their voice in every sense is what we love. You can even be in, in some sense technically inept like Bob Dylan but have such a unique pattern of breathing and interpreting that we'd rather hear, all rather hear Bob Dylan than Perry Como. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's not just a rule about uh, physical performance, magic or music. It's also true about the thing I do about writing. You know, mm -hmm. what the core of writing, the moment you find yourself as a writer is when you find your voice. And your voice as a writer, your voice on the page is what you have to pedal and to perform. And there's no good writer in the world who doesn't have an immediately distinctive voice on the page that we recognize the moment we open the book. And that's not just an accidental thing, like a thumbprint that you leave. It's a will created, crafted thing. And I don't know any good writer who won't tell you the moment that they, after, usually after years of work and labor, discovered their voice, found it speaking on the page 
within themselves. Because it's always exactly the same way. It's a composite of virtuosity, of knowing how to use language, having a large vocabulary, knowing the ins and outs of English usage, and of breaking uh, mm. that technical virtuosity, understanding when this is a device I always use to, to, and I shouldn't give it away, but I will. I end every essay I write with one simple monosyllabic sentence because it lands the whole thing, which can be very elaborate and Baroque and multisyllabic. It's like, you know, a drop shot in tennis, right? You're just a boof. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have four monosyllabic words that sum up the whole. It's those things that uh, provide the uh, impression of a voice is what we mean by voice in writing and voice in writing is everything as it is in, in all the arts. So that tension and dialogue between the pursuit of perfection and the deliberate introduction of artful imperfection, that's what makes craft into art. Mm. Yeah, there's this popular idea, sometimes associated with our friend Malcolm Gladwell, about 10,000 hours of practice to get to mastery. But as you point out, you know, it's not like Bob Dylan spent 10,000 hours trying to become the perfect folk musician, but he did spend 10,000 hours Becoming Bob Dylan, like just becoming Bob yeah. Dylan, you, like like finding your voice. It, there is something you're you you have to get good at being yourself. At the same time, you're trying to get good at the um, the craft. Yes, and you and very often getting good at being yourself means going. You know, coming back to the way that you don't learn to draw by learning to look. You learn to draw by making tilts in time and searching for the shapes of African nations. You don't find your voice by unleashing it inside you. It very often runs at countercurrents to your natural inclinations. Okay, thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying Adam Gopnik's masterclass on mastery, you won't want to miss tomorrow's episode. That's when Adam's going to share what he learned from boxing. That's right, boxing. Adam Rocky Gopnik is going to step into the ring and see how many rounds he can go. Maybe we should call up Jill Lepore, Malcolm Gladwell, and Susan Orlean for some kind of New Yorker heavyweight battle. Well, I can't promise that will happen, but I can promise one more fascinating conversation with Adam tomorrow. Hope to see you then. <laughs>